What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. The 1700s were perhaps, in my opinion, the greatest century the soils of America have ever seen. And the reason why I say that is because God would raise up two characters that would go down as history as perhaps some of the greatest individuals that ever walked on the shores of America. And one of them is described as the greatest orator. In fact, the greatest speaker and orator that this nation and this world and this hemisphere and perhaps even the known world to, even to this day has ever known. His name was the, by the name of George Whitfield. He is known as the greatest order and speaker, and he was also, fun fact today, the very first American celebrity. He would travel up and down the 13 colonies, and he would preach, and he would preach. He was not just speaking, he was preaching in a way that, that, that rattled the cages of this entire world and globe. In fact, he would go around and preach in different chapels, And if he couldn't preach in a chapel at a church, he would get out on a street corner and he would open air and preach there. And we are told that that when he preached in Boston, more people came to Boston, Massachusetts to hear him preach than even lived in the entire city. There were times when he would preach without any amplification to over 20,000 people at one time. This man was probably not the, the most handsome man. In fact, if you would go and look at pictures of him, you will notice that he was not well-fit, that we would think of well-fit today, and he was cross-eyed. Very interesting that even though he may not have been the best man to ever look at, God would raise him up to be a mouthpiece in the 1700s to unleash revival. But I believe that George Whitfield was used by God to plow the soil that would eventually lead to the Great Awakening in the 1700s. That would lead us to the second great character. Not just George Whitfield, the greatest order, but secondly today, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and he goes down as being the greatest philosopher this nation has ever heard. And I do find it interesting that, that he is not just a philosopher, but he was also a theologian, an author, and a pastor. And just as George Whitfield would be known as the greatest orator and, and, and evangelist, Jonathan Edwards would go down to become the greatest philosopher and really would be the one to preach the greatest sermon this nation ever saw. No, he didn't have the theatrical ability as George Whitfield. And by the way, historians say that George Whitfield, when he preached that preaching tour back in the colonies of America, that that is perhaps the greatest preaching tour ever since the Apostle Paul. So these men were very powerful and used by God, but it's interesting that, that, that Jonathan Edwards, at the age of 13, he started his collegiate studies at Yale University. Did you hear me? When he was 13 years old, he went on to get his degree, and then after he got that, he got his master's degree. And he would eventually become a pastor. And he would preach in, in, 
in Northampton, Massachusetts. And he would preach a sermon that had little to no effect in that congregation and in that context. But he was asked to come down to Connecticut, Enfield, Connecticut, and preach a sermon again. In fact, he wasn't supposed to be the one preaching that evening. And so that is perhaps why he was so tied to his manuscript that evening. But on July 8th, 1741... using a candlelight so he could see, and reading his manuscript before the congregation. He preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that message would be the catalyst that God would use to unleash and spark a fire in the colonies to revive the people. And it would go down to be called the First Great Awakening. His message would emphasized the horrific consequences of the judgment of God and man's refusal to repent of their sins and to confess their sins before God and trust Christ as Savior. The underlining point was simply that God has given mankind the opportunity to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Nearly every Bible college student, nearly every person that goes off to seminary has to at least read this sermon at some point in their studies. I own a copy of this sermon. You can actually go online and read it for yourself. But it's amazing that when he preached this, he was having a candlelight to light his, so he can see, and he was just reading his manuscript, not very, making very little eye contact with the people there. And the Bible, or excuse me, not the Bible, but historians say that, that, that as he was preaching, that people were so convicted by the Holy Spirit of God and would begin weeping and wailing because of their sin and cried out to God. And some historians say that as a result of this one sermon, over 500 people would come to know Christ as their Savior. Now, I share those two characters with you to let you know that, that preaching and speaking has a great impact on culture. But as great of, of a speaker as George Whitfield was, and as great of a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached back in 1741... It does not go down to even compare to how powerful the voice of Jesus Christ was when he was alive on this earth 2,000 years ago. Last week, we looked at the miracles of Christ, and I submit to you today that, that his miracles only verify and give, us, and give him the, the authority and authenticity to back up the power of his message. So today, the title of my sermon is The Wondrous Ministry of Christ, Part 2, and really the subtitle is the messages of Christ. Last week I shared with you that a key thought from last week's sermon and today's sermon, because they're kind of one sermon extended into two different days, Jesus Christ is the greatest person in history because his ministry was extraordinary. And we saw last week that, that he was the wonder-working, miracle-performing Son of God. And because he was a miracle worker and he was able to do all these different miracles, he was also able to speak in a way that would bring life transformation in the hearts of mankind. And so the thought I want you to leave with today's message is this. Jesus Christ is the gospel preaching, parable teaching, kingdom building son of God. Jesus Christ is the gospel preaching, parable teaching, kingdom building son of God. Now, we've looked at a handful of the miracles, and scholars have come to the conclusion that there are 37 different miracles that, G, that, that the Scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record about his life. And 
the Gospels record to us not only those 37 miracles, but they also record to us five specific discourses or five sermons that Jesus preached. Now, sure, he spoke a lot, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John specifically only record five sermons or discourses that he preached. And in Matthew chapter 7, in the last two verses that we read, verses 28 and 29, is the summarization of the, fi- of the first sermon he ever preached. And here the Bible says that he preached in a way with great authority. So just imagine when George Whitfield was traveling and they say that his preaching tour was, it doesn't compare to anything else but the Apostles Paul preaching tour. And then Jonathan Edwards preaching the greatest sermon America ever saw in history. Imagine the power that, that God used in them. But now imagine the power that the Son of God, God incarnate, had when he was speaking and preaching in his life in the Middle East. So why is his ministry so extraordinary? Well, it's because of his miracles, and second of all, because of his messages. His messages. The messages of Christ make the, his ministry extraordinary. That is the one simple point I have for you today, is the messages of Christ make his ministry extraordinary. Now, with all that in mind, today I don't want to try to preach every verse of all five of these sermons that he preached in the Gospel of Matthew. But what I want to do is I want to draw our attention to each one of these sermons that he preached and kind of highlight some of my favorite verses inside of these sermons. So if you got your Bibles, take them and turn to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're already there. You should be at least in Matthew chapter 7. But now just turn the page back to Matthew chapter 5. This is what we call Christ's Sermon on the Mount. He was on the Mount of Beatitudes, and there he is preaching a message to a whole crowd of people. And in verse number one, the Bible says that he sees these multitudes, and he goes up the mountain, and when he was set in place, the Bible says that his disciples came to him, and he began to open his mouth, and he preached. And now I'm not going to hit every single thing in the Sermon on the Mount, but, but notice the very first section is about the Beatitudes. This is probably the most popular, or at least the second most popular part about his Sermon on the Mount of Beatitudes. Scholars say that this was his greatest sermon. Maybe it was. I wish I could have just been a fly on the wall that day hearing his sermon and hearing how he delivered his message and hearing when he raised his voice, when he lowered his voice, etc., etc. But in Matthew chapter 5, the first several verses here, verses 1 through 12, we read about his beatitudes. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are those who are persecuted, etc., etc. And the Bible says, rejoice, be exceeding glad, for your reward is great in heaven. But then... In chapter 6, we read about three subjects he emphasizes. He emphasizes the subject of giving, how when we give, it is to be secret giving. He emphasized prayer, how when we pray, it should be secret prayer. That is not going before the entire world so that they can see us and we can become self-righteous like the Pharisees and Sadducees. But in fact, we read about the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen. This is the sermon in which he delivered that model prayer for his disciples to pray. 
Then he only not only emphasized giving and praying, but he also emphasized fasting. He said, when you fast, don't be like these hypocrites are and these Pharisees who are doing this so they could be seen of men. And if your motive is to be seen by men, that is your reward, that men will see you. But when you're doing it in secret, then God will reward you openly. If I were to pinpoint a key verse from his sermon here, I think it would be verse 33. Would you read verse 33 out loud with me? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. It says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let's read that again. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. For 2,000 years, even though all we have is the written manuscript of the message that Jesus preached here on the Mount of Beatitudes, I believe that what is being rung and sung in this first sermon is this thought, Jesus Christ deserves preeminence. Jesus Christ deserves preeminence. That's the key to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus deserves first place in our life if we call ourselves a Christian. Nothing else, no pleasure, no practice, no job, no career, no amount of money deserves to be first place other than Jesus Christ. And when we make Christ first in our lives, he will take care of our needs. And that is what we should desire to think about in 2022. That is this very first Sunday. We need to understand that Jesus 2,000 years ago was preaching this message that resonates well with our lives today. That we need Jesus to be first and foremost in our life every day of 2022. When we wake up in the morning, Jesus needs to have preeminence. When we go about our daily routine, Jesus has to have the preeminence. When we go down and we lay at night before we go to bed, Jesus deserves to be first and preeminent. Then chapter 7 speaks about not judging according to the appearance, but judging according to the heart. And in fact, Matthew chapter 7, the first part, so many people take this passage out of context, but all it's saying is when you judge somebody, you will be judged by the same standard. But then he says, ask and it shall be given, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. So many things spoken about in Jesus in chapter 5, 6, and 7. But the key thought of that sermon is Jesus Christ deserves preeminence. But now take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We've looked at the first sermon, Christ's Sermon on the Mount. But, but just remember, Jesus Christ is the gospel preaching, parable teaching, kingdom building son of God. But now the second sermon is Matthew chapter 10. And this is Christ's sermon on missions. Before he ever gave the Great Commission, he gave the Little Great Commission to the disciples. And here in this chapter, he commissions his 12 disciples that are listed by name to go out and first, to look at verse number 6. It says, first go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were commissioned and commanded to go to the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, and there teach them about the good news of the kingdom. That is, Jesus Christ is come, and his kingdom will come to this world. And he even talks about how as you're going and you're preaching, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, verse number eight, heal the sick. God gave these apostles and these disciples special, extraordinary gifts as a sign and wonder for the Jewish people. And here he says, you're going to be able to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. 
This does not mean that I'm going to be able to walk into a hospital and I'm going to be able to touch somebody's body and they're going to be healed of cancer. This does not mean I'm going to be able to walk up to a leper and cleanse them and the white spots are going to be gone. This does not mean that I'm going to be able to walk into a cemetery and say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to walk out the grave. This does not mean that I'm going to necessarily be able to walk up to somebody who's demonically possessed and be able to pull that demon out of them. Now, we know Jesus has the power to do all those things, but he gave these apostles these specific gifts to do this as a sign and wonder for the Jewish people. And he says, don't provide gold in verse number nine, nor silver, nor brass in your purses. Then it says, verse number 10, don't bring script for your journey, not even two coats, nor shoes, nor staves. He says, the workman is worthy of his meat. He says, and into the wilderness and city and town you go into, inquire who it is who is worthy, and there abide till you go hence. And he says, when you come into a house, salute it. And it says, if that house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it not be worthy, let your peace return. And then I like this verse, verse 14. Whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. He is sending out these 12 apostles and disciples to go and preach the word of God. Now, as we think about this, here's what I think about. Here's the key thought from this message that he gave to the disciples. Jesus Christ has sent us to spread the gospel. He has. Not only has he, does he deserve preeminence in our lives, but he has commanded you and me to go tell people about the good news of Christ, to go spread the gospel. So this year, let's make it a point that, that we're going to make it a habit to share the gospel on a regular basis. I'm not here to say that you need to go soul winning and door knocking five, day, five hours every single day. I'm not here to say that you need to go out and knock on a hundred doors every single day throughout this year. But what I am saying is we need to make it a lifestyle habit that when we come to an opportunity that presents itself, that we can share the good news of Christ, let us share it. Now will you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 13? This is the third sermon that he preached. The first sermon was the Sermon on the Mount about Jesus Christ deserves preeminence. The second sermon was on missions in Matthew chapter 10 about Jesus Christ has sent us to spread the gospel. But the third sermon is Christ's sermon on parables. Matthew chapter 13. We read about the first section where he's outside and he tells about the parable of the sower. He speaks about the parable of the tares. He speaks about the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of leaven. And then the second half, he goes into a house or into a building, and he speaks about the hidden treasure, the pearl, and drawing of the net. Here in this chapter, now understand, there are other parables that he's spoken throughout his life and ministry. But this is one chapter that emphasizes the key parables in a sense, all at one time. He is delivering these parables to this people in Matthew chapter 13. The Bible says that there was a great multitude gathered there together. And the Bible says that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? Now, Jesus lived in a day that he didn't have these sure microphones that we use today. He lived in an age where he didn't have these speakers right here and amplification. So they had to use tricks. They had to use the natural environment that God made for amplification. And one of those ways is to get into a little boat or a little ship and to go a little ways out into the water and there, when you speak, the water becomes an amplification device and projects your voice further than you'd ever thought it would go. 
And so Jesus is out in this water at first, and he's speaking these parables. And then he comes out, and he begins to go into a building and share more. Now, I'm not going to try to dive into understanding and interpreting all these parables today, but the point of this section of this sermon is this. Jesus Christ taught in parables. That's the point of chapter 13. And why did he do that? Or what is a parable? A parable is an earthly story revealing a heavenly truth. That's all a parable is. And when Jesus spoke in parables, it was to disclose information from the Pharisees and Sadducees so that the people who believed in him could understand. He didn't speak in these parables, and they were not illustrations so that it could make it easier to understand, unless you're a believer. But it was to hide a truth that these Pharisees and religious hypocrites weren't willing to believe. And so that's why Jesus spoke in parables. Now, sure, we can use stories and they can be great illustrations. But also, I want you to understand that when we study these parables, when Jesus speaks in a parable, generally speaking, he says it's a parable. For example, in verse number three, it says, And he spake many things unto them in parables. And he goes on to elaborate. There are other times where he speaks in parables and he mentions about a man or mentions these people, but he never mentions them by name. And generally speaking, when Jesus speaks a parable, he doesn't mention people by name because it's a parable and a story. An earthly story revealing a heavenly truth. Now, I would like to say that you could spend your entire lifetime only studying the parables in the Gospel of Matthew, and you will not fully understand them. And so, scholars debate about some of these things, but I say that to say this, is that when we're reading these things, when we're studying the Word of God, it's not always necessary for us to dive into some sections to figure out all the nuts and bolts. We can try to understand the gist, and we should study it. We should try to. But the point of this section is not necessarily that. It's so that the world can understand, and us today, that Jesus spoke in parables. So that the Pharisees wouldn't understand what he was talking about, and his disciples would. Now, the fourth sermon is Matthew chapter 18. But remember, Jesus Christ is the gospel preaching, parable teaching, kingdom building son of God. His messages were the greatest messages that anybody ever spoke and preached. But in Matthew chapter 18, we read about his sermon on the church. Now remember in chapter 16, he already spoke about how he will build the church. And he will build his church. And it would be a good idea for us here in 2022 to understand that we don't need programs we don't need gimmicks and we don't need gadgets to build the church. All we need to do is let God, let the Son of God do His own work. We are called to be faithful in preaching and teaching God's Word and the good news of Jesus Christ. But as he's preaching his message on the church, I love verse number 11. He's coming and he's talking about all these different things and and in verse number 11, I love this verse because I think this is the key to his sermon. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. He has. So here's the point. Jesus Christ came to save the lost. That's the point of this sermon in Matthew 18. Jesus Christ came to save the lost. He came to give his life a ransom on the cross so that all those who don't know him could come to know him and have a personal relationship with Jesus. 
here in verse number three, he speaks about being converted, being born again, if you will. He says, unless you're converted and become like a little child, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's speaking about this childlike faith. And he says, whoever humbles themselves as a little child, the same shall be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What a powerful message he preached. But I also want to draw your attention to verse 15. He gives us the concept here that the word church is mentioned. And remember, the word church, it just comes from a Greek word that's called ekklesia. And all it means is to call it out assembly. And so sometimes in the Bible, it means an actual church congregation like we are. And sometimes it just means a group of people that are gathered together. So when we go into a courthouse and we're gathered together in the auditorium, that is a church in a sense because it's a gathered people for an assembly. But here, I believe he's given us instructions on how to handle issues and controversy and contention. In verse number 15, the Bible says that if your brother trespass against you, or if your brother has, has, has an offense against you, you go to them individually at first. Then, if he will not hear you, the Bible says take one or two more people with you, so that at the mouth of two or three witnesses every word shall be established. And then he says, if that doesn't work, then bring that situation before the church body. Now some... Scholars would say this means to bring them to the elders of the church or the leaders. And some would say it means to bring it to the whole entire congregation. I would lead towards the elders of the church and let the elders and the pastors handle that situation. But there are times where the whole need needs to be brought before the entire congregation. But for the most part, these issues need to be handled privately. Here's his message on the church. And he came to save and redeem and restore broken humanity's relationship with God the Father. Now let's look at his fifth and final sermon. My favorite one. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Christ preaches Sermon on the Mount of Beatitudes in chapters 5 and 7. 5 through 7. He preaches Sermon on Missions in chapter 10. He preaches Sermon about the parables in chapter 13. And he preaches Sermon on the Church in chapter 18. But now, it's interesting, in chapter 23, 24, and 25, we read about his sermon on the end times. But I'm only going to emphasize chapter 24, because there's literally so much in this sermon. I mean, there's so much. And we just spent all last year kind of diving into aspects of chapter 24 and chapter 25. But Jesus here, he's preaching on the Mount of Olivet, the Mount of Olives. It's the exact same place. I do find it interesting that he's preaching about his second coming at the exact spot where he will come the second time. And so the point of chapter 23, 24, and 25 in this final sermon that he preached is Jesus Christ will return again. Now, you know, we like to discuss and debate about is, it, is, is, is the rapture going to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, or whatever. I, I've come to be pan-trib. It'll all pan out in the end. We debate about, is it pre-mill, ah-mill, or, or post-mill? I lean towards pre-mill and pre-trib, but you know, I've just become pan-mill. It'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> but see, this chapter, these sections of Matthew's gospel reveal to us that Jesus is going to come again. And there will be a time of great tribulation on the earth. We may not be able to fully understand all the details now, but when it transpires, we will be fully illuminated by the Holy Spirit and His Word. But look at chapter 24. 
Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives and the disciples, they come to him and they begin to ask him, what are the signs of your second coming? And he says, take heed that no man deceives you. In verse four, he says, there will come people who say, I am Christ and the Messiah are the anointed one, but do not believe them. They will try to deceive you. He says, you will hear about these wars and rumors of wars and do not be troubled to these things. He says, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. He says, nation will rise up against nation. He says, kingdom will rise up against kingdom. He says, there will be famines. There will be times where people will go with a scarcity of food. There will be pestilences or diseases. There will be earthquakes. All these things will happen in diverse places. I believe chapter 24 is to be studied in context of Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 18. And these, these, emphasis, these things of emphasis that Jesus is pointing about is going to take place during the tribulation period. Now, yes, there's wars happening today. Yes, there's famine happening today. Yes, there's diseases. But it's all leading up to the greatest famine that will take place in the tribulation, the greatest disease that will take place in the tribulation, and the greatest earthquakes that the world will see during the seven years of tribulation. He speaks about these false prophets again. He speaks about all these different things. He even quotes the book of Daniel about the abomination of desolation. That is, the Antichrist is going to rise. And our world is vastly approaching. Call me crazy and a fanatic all you want to. But our world is vastly approaching a one-world economy, a one-world government, and a one-world religion. And the more we get to that, the riper the events will be for the tribulation period. And so Jesus is just laying it all out. Here in this sermon. And he says, when you see that abomination of desolation or the Antichrist come, run to the mountains. And many of those believers of that day will run and hide in the cleft of the rock. And then in verse number 29, it speaks about immediately after those seven years, Jesus will descend from heaven and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives and there establish his kingdom and defeat the, the, the enemy, the Antichrist, and his entire army. Now, a lot of people get, get a little frustrated and flabbergasted when it speaks about how Jesus is going to come back with vengeance in an army. And, and we're going to be with him. But notice the imagery when he's returning, he's on a white horse. Just like when John was writing the book of Revelation and as Jesus was speaking here, he was underneath the Roman Empire and generally the general commander-in-chief of that army in the Roman Empire would march into battle on a white horse and have the whole army and everybody else behind him. And then they would bring in their infantry and their swords and they would go in and they would kill. But the Bible says that Jesus is going to defeat the Antichrist and the army with the sword of his mouth. So he doesn't need the gadgets and the warfare and the, the, the infantry that we use today. All he's going to do is speak and defeat the Antichrist and the army. And then the Bible speaks so many other things here. But the emphasis here is simply Jesus Christ is going to return again. It might be this year, maybe. I don't know exactly when. In fact, Jesus said that day and hour, nobody's going to know when he's going to split that eastern sky and establish his kingdom. But what I do know is Jesus Christ is the gospel preaching, parable teaching, kingdom building son of God. You know, there's been very few people in America that was given a God-given voice to influence the entire nation. 
I talked to you about the 1700s, but now I want to talk to you about the 1900s. And I want to talk to you about a time period that was very similar to what we have observed in the last few years. A time of great civil unrest, a time of great hatred and racism. And on August 28th, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech on the march on Washington for jobs and freedom called I Have a Dream, standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial. It was the defining moment for the civil rights movement in the 1960s. We are told by historians that some 250,000 people gathered together around that memorial to witness history in the making. And if you've seen the video, or maybe you were alive and watched on TV live that day, you noticed that there were people upon people upon people. Everywhere you looked, all you saw were people. With a single phrase, King joined Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln to influence this world. Far beyond just America. His speech was so moving that I personally listen to it every single year on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I get on YouTube and I find it and I listen to it. Sometimes two or three times that day. Because I I find it interesting, now I'm not saying I agree with all of his theology, but he was a Baptist preacher and minister. And when he gave that speech, he was not speaking just like anybody speaking. He was preaching that I have a dream speech. And my favorite phrase from that speech is this. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Just think about how his speech that day changed how we think about nationalities. But as we reflect on that, think about when Jesus was on the Mount of Beatitudes, when Jesus was there giving his message on missions, when he was there giving the parable speeches, when he was there talking about the church and about the end times, imagine how much more of an impact Jesus has had, not just in one decade or one century, but every single decade and every single century and every single year after he ascended up to glory that his sermons has impacted all the way to you and me to this very day. So why is his ministry so great? Well, it's not just because of his miracles, but his miracles provided the credibility and weight behind the messages he preached. Jesus Christ was the greatest preacher this world has ever seen. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.